0: with me this morning as we inquire into God's Word. Heavenly Father, it is, uh, of course, an opportunity for us not only to uh, learn with our uh, minds, but also with our spirits, not only with our heads, but with our hearts. It's an opportunity for us to grow in grace and to um, understand, Lord, that as our bodies require food, uh, so do our spirits. And so we ask this morning that we would be fed Uh, from your hand as the children of Israel were fed in the wilderness. But we pray that your word would penetrate uh, who we are as persons, that we would not uh, refuse your word, but that we would have uh, soft hearts, always pliable and uh, amenable to receiving the truth that you have in store for us. Words of life, words of life, uh, wonderful words of life. When, Lord, we don't know how to uh, pull life together We know that as we inquire into Scripture, it is a sure and eternal resource for us uh, beyond any other. And so we are happy, uh, Lord, now to come to your word this morning and be encouraged. We pray and ask these things in your precious name and all the people of God said, amen. So uh, there are a lot of uh, firsts in life, as uh, we're all aware. Um, Of course, the, the very big first is for us to be born, to uh, come into this life, to breathe our first, to be uh, grabbed by our feet, turned upside down and slapped on the rear side, and we enter life and we begin being born. Another first, of course, is learning to ride our bikes. How many of us remember learning to ride our bikes? Okay, Um, I don't remember learning how to ride my bike, so you're all ahead of me. Uh, This morning, I remember teaching Brittany how to ride a bike, but I don't remember that uh, for myself I do know how to ride a bike which uh, may be important Um, How about uh, the first of going out on your first date Uh, perhaps a memorable and an enjoyable uh, fun-filled experience with uh, great eagerness and expectation uh, and all the butterflies that go along with an experience such as that or the first of uh, graduating from high school, you know, that uh, level of achievement that uh, crowns all the, the hard work of a, a 17 or an 18-year-old, and uh, that becomes their big moment to cross the stage, and it becomes a triumphal uh, first. Or the uh, first job, uh, perhaps you can recall that. Now, that is something that I do remember, I recall, I worked at uh, Barry's restaurant and party house. Mr. Barry uh, was the owner operator and uh, Mr. Berry to describe him to you was a very, very uh, tall man, easily over six foot. Uh, he was a quiet man, but he exuded this presence. When he would walk into his restaurant, he didn't have to say a word, but the staff knew that he was there because Mr. Barry was a man of expectation, and he had this long face and these beady eyes and this shock of uh, uh, silvery uh, gray hair. Uh, he had a full head of hair, which was uh, quite nice for, um, well, I did have hair back then, not so much now, but I did then for my first job. And he always had this kind of uh, a stoic expression. Uh, he was all about the business, you know? Uh, making sure everything was running smoothly and getting the job done. And Mr. Barry was always, always dressed in a three-piece suit. I, I, I thought to myself, Mr. Barry goes to bed in his three-piece suit. And he always looked very um, handsome and distinguished. But Mr. Barry was also a man of faith. Because as I came to learn, it was his habit and custom to go to Mass Every single morning, and he was at mass at 5:30 a.m., long before he ever stepped across the threshold of his own business, and that impressed me because I considered that to be a, a wonderful example to all of us, uh, young high school students that were still trying to figure life out. And that whole aspect of, of hard work was something that was uh, taught to me. Uh, by my parents, uh, my European immigrant parents, because hard work just kind of uh, goes along with uh, who you are, and your character and, and personality. But uh, what Mr. Berry taught me, in addition to what my, my folks taught me, was, was two essential things. First of all, Mr. Berry um, impressed more by example than anything else um, the idea of working together as a team, everybody together, cooks, dishwashers, waiters, waitresses, busboys. Uh, that was what I was doing there, uh, cleaning up the tables, uh, staying out of the way of the head waitress. That was key. You see, so you took care of what you needed to, but we all did it together as a team. And um, I, I, I know. Uh, Uh, My wife, Janet, and I, uh, we particularly enjoy going to Bonefish Restaurant. Uh, We love Bonefish. It's one of our uh, favorite restaurants. We particularly love the Bang Bang Shrimp. Uh, That is so enjoyable. No one does Bang Bang Shrimp quite like Bonefish uh, Restaurant and Grill. Uh, They actually gave me $20 to say that in my sermon this morning to all of you, but... uh, Uh, At Bonefish, I marvel because the person that takes your order, well, they attend to you at the table, uh, but the food comes out to your table from different persons, and your drinks come to your table from different persons, and I always admire that because it's representational of teamwork, everybody kind of taking a different part and uh, pulling together, and as we all know, there's no I in T-E-A-M, right? Well, Mr. Berry also taught me about something called your work ethic, and what I found is the quality of work emerges from your values, yeah? What you bring to the job is oftentimes a, a, a testimony, a, a tribute to the, the internal values that you've been taught or that you possess as a person and values emerge from what you believe and the choices that you make in life. Now all human beings have values because all human beings make decisions and they make choices and some values are good and some values are not so good. Um, Yesterday we had our uh, foster Scottish Terrier Uh, at the vet and uh, uh, we were horrified, Janet and I, to uh, learn a story of uh, one gentleman who was a a pet owner and he became very angry or irate and for whatever reasons we don't know but the short story was shared with us. He took the dog in the house and in his anger he slammed the dog to the ground, to the floor and uh, hurt the dog and so the, the, the dog was removed from the home. But the, the question that we all had a little bit of conversation about there in the veterinary office is, well, if if that's what the gentleman does to that dog, what would he do to another person? Because you see there's a correlation between how we treat animals and how we treat human beings, you see? And so that got us wondering. And so as we uh, begin to get ready for Easter, we ask questions like, what kind of people are we? What are our values all about, and are we an Easter people? Well, what does this mean? This not only asks about what we believe canonically, which just means the standard of Scripture, not only about what we believe dogmatically, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, yeah? That's quite possibly the easy part of easter well what we yes jesus is lord he's raised from the dead we can acknowledge that and embrace it the hard part is do we live like easter people like we're resurrected do our values show that forth in our lives? You see, there's a, a big difference between believing about Easter and then believing that Easter actually has a hold of you and is transformational in your life. So great if you believe in the resurrection, not so good if you don't act like you do, right? I mean, in that case, I, I guess I don't really care what you believe, if what you believe isn't shown within how you live. Well, I came across this um, elderly gentleman um, a little while ago at the YMCA. I was uh, uh, was, uh, uh, just preparing. I was getting my sneakers on and And getting ready for my workout and, uh, you know, getting ready for that precious private time that I enjoy in the gym, you know, ready to hook my MP3 into my ears. And this elderly gentleman came over to me and he said to me, uh, he said, do you believe in aliens? And I, well, I thought about that. And before I could really put together a uh, a cogent answer for the gentleman he he began, he launched into this long explanation about the the reality of of how aliens have visited us and that they are watching us and and how credible and real area thirteen is out in where is it colorado nevada i 'm not quite sure you know and and uh, he he believed this so strongly and so staunchly that I began to get a little bit scared as the conversation developed, you know. And uh, so I just kind of nodded my head and kind of took some steps back and waved goodbye and on I went with my workout. But I thought, well... That's a nice belief to have, I suppose, believing that aliens are, are watching us. But what's his goal? Was he evangelizing me so that I would turn into an alien? I wasn't quite sure. And, and quite honestly, I don't know, you see, if aliens are any better than human beings until I actually meet one. When I meet one, I will happily share with you whether they are qualitatively better than we or, or not. Do you see? But I can meet Jesus. Yeah? I can meet Jesus and I can meet a Christian and in that person, I can find out what a better human being should look like and behave like. So, do we live raised up with the power of the resurrection infused and infecting us? Well, we all know from watching the news recently you'd have to be hiding under a rock not to know it uh, about the influenza epidemic that is gripping our nation. I think the the only state that's being spared is is Hawaii at the present moment. It's a terrible epidemic and of course people and, and children even have uh, died from this epidemic this year. And so we ask, well, well, what's the prevention? And of course, we we see much in the media about the flu shot and so on and so forth. But you, you'll you also see um, uh, people scrubbing down surfaces, trying to get rid of, of the germs off of doorknobs and uh, lockers at, at school and so on. And so the, the resurrected life, you see, my friends, is somewhat like catching the flu. Well, I say, well, that's interesting, Daniel. You see, you get it, the flu, when someone who is infected gives it to you. Yeah? We get faith when someone who is infected with faith, who is contagious with faith and trust and belief in the resurrection, passes it along and contaminates us with the resurrection, you know. You see, the world always wants to wash and scrub down all the surfaces from preventing the spread of the gospel, you know. That's what this old world likes to do. I mean, in today's text, it tells us that at the conclusion of the ministry, of the preaching ministry of John the Baptist, he was what? He was thrown in jail. That's the world's way of trying to scrub out the message of the good news of God. Yeah, let's just scrub this message away, scrub it out entirely. But we are still several weeks uh, out from celebrating the resurrection. So while we've got all this time on our hands waiting for Easter, we could make good use of our time preparing. But get ready for Easter asks this one thing of us uh, on the lead up to Easter. It asks us to engage in examination. Now, unless you are like the know-it-all academic out of Harry Potter, Hermione Granger, who was always putting her hand up to give the professor every answer to every question. And Hermione Granger, she loved examinations, yeah? Unless you are that way inclined, you are probably like me who didn't care very much for examinations in school, yeah? I won't ask for a show of hands this morning. Now, I had a... Um, very smart know-it-all friend when I was in college by the name of Jonathan Namsu. And uh, I don't know how, and I still don't know how to this day. It would take me literally weeks of studying in preparation for an examination. And Jonathan Namsu was one of those students who could go up to his dorm room about 11 o'clock at night, the day before the examination was to be given and pull a quote-unquote all-nighter and get up the following morning at like 6 a.m. and sit down for that examination and he would ace it. And I could I could never get to that place of of understanding how that was possible, but but Jonathan could do that and he went on to be a um, pastor in a in a place called Thunder Bay, Michigan. Have you ever heard of Thunder Bay? I think it's like in the upper, it's like in the hinter regions of like way up there in Michigan. Very, very cold up there and I always thought well you know that is the just punishment for Jonathan, you know, for being able to pull those one-nighters and ace all those examinations. Well, examinations can take different forms, you see, I I know that uh, when Janet, the, the British system for examinations is different than the American. I don't see uh, my Barbara with us here this morning, but the British system of examinations is this. You get one exam at the end. You would study all year long, no little mini quizzes along the way, no quarterly exam. You would get one huge honking examination at the end that was either a past or fail kind of examination. No wonder Janet burned all of her books when she graduated from high school, you see. (laughs) So there are different ways that people can get examined. So an examination asks what of us? It asks us to look over all the material that we have learned and the examination or test asks us to prove what we have learned, what we have internalized. But more important than that are the results of the examination. Can I get an amen? amen? The results of the examination will tell the driving examiner whether you are fit to get behind the wheel of a car or not. You yeah? know? The results of the examination will tell the high school or the state that you are ready to don your robe, your cap and gown, and walk across the stage and graduate. It will tell the county whether you are fit to uh, administer CPR if you're training as a first responder. The results of the examination will determine if you're ready to practice your trade, leave college, or become a practitioner of your profession. You see, there has got to be some evidentiary results which others interpret that declares that you are fit, that you are ready and prepared to be more of a person tomorrow than the person that you are today. And obviously, if this is the case, preparation or getting ready ahead of time, well, that's absolutely essential. I mean, think of this with me. Uh, How many of you have daughters in the congregation? Just uh, how many of you? Okay, quite a few of you have daughters. I mean, if you had a daughter, and she spent hours and hours and hours and hours getting herself ready for the senior prom, dress, hair, makeup, nails, flowers, shoes, What am I missing? I don't know. It's a very, very long list, but it takes a very long time to get ready, you know? And then she comes down the staircase looking like a million dollars and you just go, you know? How many of us would send her to the prom with the guy who arrives at the front door, rings the buzzer, you open the door, and you behold a fellow there in ripped jeans, a baseball cap, and a hoodie? Now, come on, you know? Now, if you've actually let that happen, I I don't want to know about it, okay? Yeah? And, of course, I speak in metaphors. But who would actually do that, you see? The examination. Often the occasion demands the amount of preparation, doesn't it? The occasion demands the amount of preparation. When two people are married, yeah, they put in hours and days and weeks and months getting ready for what? To come down this aisle and spend half an hour in front of this altar in the presence of God one half hour, 45 minutes at best, in a ceremony? How is all of that preparation, weeks and months, how is all of that justified by one half hour, 45 minute ceremony? Because it is within that half hour, we find that that half hour is absolutely essential and it is completely worth all of the preparation that goes into it for this one reason only those two people know that they are preparing to spend their whole lives together that's why all the preparation is essential you see so coming to easter is kind of like that it's it's not all about the pretty dresses and the smart suits you know some people regard easter as kind of a a once-and-done sort of event. Oh no, Lent is preparing us to to take the exam for an event that will will change the course and destiny of our lives forever and ever. The truth of Easter is this. Either it is the resurrection, Jesus being it, or it isn't. It's one of those two things. And Lent calls us to deal with that in ourselves calling us to decide, well, what do you believe? Is is Easter, it, it isn't? I don't care, I'm not so much bothered, and sure, I'll, I'll get myself all, all smarted up for the day, or, or it is, and it's something much more and transformational beyond just the day itself. C.S. Lewis writes of Jesus, he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher, he did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred. I don't like this guy, Jesus. Terror. I'm absolutely afraid of him. Or adoration. He's the guy that I want to worship. But C.S. Lewis goes on to say, there was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Mild. And so as we step off the train of life for, oh, for just a little while, because that's what the 40 days of Lent invite us to do, step off the train of life for a little while, and as we do, God confronts us. He's like a loud porter on the platform of the train station bellowing out to the passengers. No one ever said that getting ready for Easter was meant to be mild. Oh no, there's already too much mildness within the church of Jesus Christ. When God confronts us with that very first word of the Gospels, it's not mild, it's loud. And that word is repent. Very first word of the Gospels. You see, Lent is trying to get our attention. God confronts us loudly with what is the first word of the Gospels. Why is it loud? Because most of us don't hear it. We hear repent and we ignore it, yeah? Now, if you hear this word, you may continue. If you don't hear it, you're going to have a rough day and a very, very hard time. You see, you're going to have to repeat fifth grade all over again. And the last time that I checked, there were no 17-year-olds in fifth grade, yeah? You see, if you don't hear it, the system will eventually turf you out. You've got to be able to hear and embrace that word of repentance, you see. And that will be my seventh message in this sermon series entitled The Finality of Hell and the Freedom of Calvary. The first word of the Gospels is repent. Change your ways. John the Baptist baptized people in the Jordan River. After they repented, after they recognized, I've got this wrong, and I've got to make a a, a clean break of, you know, get away from all of my sins and my sinful life, so that I can, so that I can be washed in the waters of the Jordan. The first word is repent, and repent is a tough word. I'll admit that. Because it's not a word that any of us can dilute or water down. We, we, we can't sneak around the backside of repentance, you see, my friends. We can't negotiate or get a better deal out of repentance. The call to repent often hits very hard. Every single person who dares has the audacity to call themselves a believer of the one who went willingly to be nailed upon the cross. And in order to become a Christian, we must accept the blows that the call of repentance inflicts upon us. Well, Daniel, you are scaring me now. But this is the very first word of the Gospels, you see. And it is what Jesus based the entirety of his life and ministry upon. The scripture says, and after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time, the time has come, Jesus said. Ever have somebody say that to you? The time has come. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. When when God hits you with repent, it means that you and I we got to give up. We got to let go. Give up what? You got to lay down your civil war against God. You know? Give up what? Give up you. Give up you. Die to self. Tell God that you're wrong. That you haven't got it right. You see, you and I are the ones who are getting in the way. God doesn't get in the way of us. We get in the way of God. We get in the way of, of, of God's salvation and God's healing and God's peace uh, what we call the good news, all of those kinds of things, but we don't get all the good stuff without first passing through the sieve of repentance until we admit that God is right and we are wrong. I know that's not popular, but I ain't here to preach popular. You want, you want popular preaching? Go listen to somebody else, yeah? The call to repent means giving up your struggling and striving, your independence, your rationalism, and your own self-will. That's it. Repent. Repent of doing it your way. Oswald Chambers writes, Spiritual darkness comes because of something I do not intend to obey. That's when my spiritual darkness comes along, you see. You see, your way is not the cross. Would you go to the cross for me? Would I go to the cross for you? Probably not. Because of our own self-will. But Jesus, Jesus went. Giving up all that we believe that we've earned or feel that we deserve or that others, heaven help us, owe to us. You owe me. We got that. It's always there on our shoulder. Others owe me. Others owe me. Others lay it down. Let it go. Repent. Yeah. But it is Christ himself. Not his attendants, not his messengers, not his staff, not his elders, not his bishops, nor his martyrs, nor his pastors who call us to repentance, he does. He calls us to repentance. And when I call others to repent, I'm not calling anybody to repent. I'm just telling others what he said. Yeah? So repent. Lay it down. Lay it down. You and I can do no further. Can go no further until we do. It is the first and it is the most important word of the Gospels. Amen.